nearly a decade, Brett the Hitman Hart was perhaps the most beloved superstar in the World Wrestling Federation. But when a stone-cold killer declared his intention to end Brett's legacy, the Hitman was perceived the villain, the unrelenting antagonist, the fan favorite. Soon anger replaced fashion, arrogance supplanted a champion's pride. Brett turned his back on an entire nation and reunited the Hart Foundation to launch a reign of mayhem and destruction. Tonight in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, the paradox continues. Tonight, the prodigal sons return home the heroes, while five mighty superstars on a noble crusade become the villains. Tonight, the rogues are the beloved, the heroes, the hated. Tonight, the great clouds of disarray threaten to unleash a devastating tempest in your house. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Matt Madness Wrestling Podcast. I'm your host for the night, Alo Aaron Lloyd, and today's episode is all about Canadian Stampede in Your House 1997. So before we get into the advertised weekly content, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to leave us a five-star review. Any review is accepted, but I would really appreciate comments in the review box. I want to know what you guys think of the show. Also, head over to Ringside Collectibles and use promo code MMADNESS. To save 10% off your order, San Diego Comic Con just passed, so I already know you guys are hitting checkout on a lot of things. Uh, Elite 78 and 79 are already hitting ringside, so make sure to use our promo code to support. Uh, before we get into Canadian Stampede, I have a few thoughts on this past week's Monday Night on Raw. I'm currently recording on Wednesday night, so AEW is going on right now, so I'm not going to have any thoughts about AEW's Dynamite or NXT, but I'm going to have some thoughts on Raw. Uh, Drew McIntyre and Randy Orton is official going into SummerSlam, and I'm excited about this, actually. I've I've been saying for months now, Randy Orton is definitely a strong candidate for Superstar of the Year, and whether or not you're turned off by WWE or tired of Randy Orton, it's just undeniable at this point. He's been excellent all year long and is continuing to show. And this is also a new, a new feud. We never seen Randy Orton really and Drew McIntyre go one on one. And it's for the world title. I'm really excited to actually see this. I'm looking forward to it. It should be a great match and a great feud, especially with the level Randy Orton's at now with his whole the whole return to Legend Killer and Drew McIntyre at, at a high in his career. I think both these guys are at the top of their game, and I think this match in store will actually be really well. I'm not sure if it's best to put the title on Randy Orton now or wait to a later point. I'm kind of leaning towards the part of wait towards a later point, but you already know WWE, they're trying to be the first ones to get fans in attendance again, and it might not be in a full arena, but even if it's in a small arena, say let's say Full Sail, for example, I think they're aiming to do certain things with a live audience in attendance and if there if nothing changes i think mcintyre should at least get one victory over orton then orton get it over get the title in a, at a later date and mcintyre win it back eventually when we do get fans in attendance but if i had to lean forward to something i, I kind of would leave to a, a no finish in their SummerSlam match to build the momentum to another match but maybe a possible stipulation that's what i would do personally now we all know I've been on Sasha Banks and Bailey's bandwagon for years and higher than ever before in the last few months. And I'm in the front of that motherfucker because 
the way, so, well, first of all, two belt banks is official. Sasha Banks wins the Royal Women's title from Oscar on one wins the Roman Slaughter from Oscar on Monday Night on Raw and I thought the finish and I know you're going to disagree or he said oh he always says it's perfect this was perfect because we also heard we always heard the reports about Kyrie Singh leaving and Kyrie Singh is leaving so she is no longer part of the WWE roster but this match had one of my favorite finishes that WWE never really goes back to so one of my favorite finishes in WWE history was it was on a Raw in 1999. I believe it was January or February. The Rock defends the title against Triple H in an I Quit match on Raw. The Rock's a part of the corporation at this point. And Triple H is about to pedigree The Rock through a table. And Kane, I believe, grabs China and puts her in a chokehold like she's about to choke slam her. And Triple H has to make a decision. Does he pedigree The Rock and win the title? Or does he save China? So he had to make a choice. And in those type of situations, you have to decide. And it's like, oh, my God, like, what, what do I have to do? So there's nothing more heelish than that, actually making somebody choose. And in the Faces case, they're going to choose their friend over winning a match. And that's what Oscar did for Kyrie Sane. And this is why I appreciate that finish. There's not many times. I don't think they've even harkened really back to that since that. Night in 1999. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, correct me. But I don't recall. And also, also in that match, China tur- Ch- Ch- after Triple H attempts to save China and quits the- and says I quit and loses the match. China joins the corporation. So there's not a, a t- there wasn't a turn at the end like it was in 1999. But that was one of my favorite finishes I've ever seen in WWF do at that time, and it still is. And I'm glad they harken back to it. And there's nothing more heelish for Sasha Banks and Bailey doing literally anything to win a match and capture all the gold. I'm not sure if you saw the WWE Network exclusive interview, but allegedly they're after the NXT Women's title next. And I cannot wait for that because I also said a few weeks ago that them being on each show, Raw, SmackDown, and NXT, it's not wasted. Everything they do on all those three shows actually means something. How badass would it be to see a triple threat match with Sasha and Bayley versus Io Shirai? And if Sasha Banks and Bayley's egos clash over who wants to be the NXT Women's Champion. You know, but it's a lot to be a lot left in this story and I'm loving every single second of it and I cannot wait to see what we get going forward. So, get into Canadian Stampede 1997. If you've never been to us before, we'll play for you our rating system. has a rating system in place. If it's a horrible show, it gets a jobber. If the show falls somewhere in the middle, it gets a slumber knocker. And if it is an amazing show, it gets the rating of ratings, it will get a show stopper. So, Canadian Stampede 1997. I'm going to give this show a showstopper. This show was a really well-acclaimed show, and I have to agree, I can't really disappoint. It was the two-hour in-your-house format, and I thought everything on this card was a hit. Uh, I thought a lot of it on this card is actually went forgotten, because a lot of these things that happen on the show are long-term stories that we forgot about in each person's story, and all of us 
people on the show aren't big Bret Hart guys, but Bret in 1997, it's hard to debate. That's the best Bret Hart. To me, that's my favorite version of Bret Hart. Uh, it's the only my only favorite version of Bret Hart. He's not, not Bret Hart, not for me. I'm an Owen guy forever. And this show being in Canada was so crucial to the show's success because as much he as the Hart Foundation drew in, in the U.S., I don't think a U.S. crowd will react to the Americans the same way that Canada did, Canada did to the Hart Foundation. And this may have been the best home field advantage in wrestling for the Hart Foundation. And since this was in Canada, in a shorter in a shorter show, a lot of the cutscenes are actually all about Bret Hart and the Hart Foundation and how much they are loved in Canada. So we'll get into the first match. It's Hunter Hearst, Hemsley, and Mankind. This match ends in a no contest. And right in the top of my rating, I talked about forgotten matches and feuds. And this is one because we know the month prior, Helmsley wins King of the Ring over Mankind. And at SummerSlam, we, they got their cage match. And the following night in the Garden, it's the first night we see Cactus Jack. And this is a forgotten match in the story. And I thought it fit in really well here. These two had amazing chemistry always through the roof and I can't recall them ever having a bad match and with these two it always kind of feels like anytime they come back together it feels like they never lost a step and never lost a beat and you never and also their history also follows so you never forgot what happened the previous time these guys feuded it always felt like they're just picking up right where they left off and Helmsley and stories Helmsley and Mankind's story was always continuous as much, and especially as much as you see the same old matchups nowadays, when you see those same old matchups, you don't always go back to their previous history, and it, it doesn't really ever feel like they're pick the two guys aren't picking up right where they left off. And something we always talk about on this show since 2016 when we started this show is, what if Triple H never got in trouble with the curtain call in Austin? doesn't win king of the ring because in 96 triple h is supposed to win king of the ring but we also but, but we also have to just kind of say this as well if triple h wins in 96 he doesn't feud with mankind because mankind is feuding with the with the undertaker throughout the summer of 96 so if triple h doesn't feud with mankind and win in 97 is triple h really the big deal that he actually became because Triple H needed Mankind, and I think Triple H says it on numerous occasions. His man, Mankind was the person that put him to another level. And if Triple H doesn't, if Triple H wins in '96, do we ever get the blue blood showing that he can hang and be hardcore? Allegedly, do we ever see that? We we may never know, and that's something we have to start kind of asking ourselves at this point. And throughout the night, these two are fighting all over the arena. You'll see them pop up. During the ta- um, the Taka and Grace Hasuke match, you'll see them do that, and even th- after that match, you see them still fighting throughout the night, and that's just something we have to ask ourselves: Is Triple H, if Triple H won in '96, who would have been his first big feud, and would he been made a big deal? After the match, we get a promo with the Heart Foundation backstage. Well. A Hart Foundation around Canada. Then we go backstage with Doc Hendricks with the Hart Foundation. Austin comes into the locker room and is restrained by the WWE officials. We then got Taka Michinoku versus the Great Sasuke. And as you guys know, these matches uh, with the Japanese talent 
especially in WWF, it's not for me. Um, these guys are known for their work from an in-ring perspective, but this was a time where WWF was trying something new and trying to put over the light heavyweight division, which the title will come into fruition later in the year, but this is basically trying to counter WCW's cruiserweight division. And WWE, they fell way short of that. But I'll say this, in 1997, there wasn't anybody in the WWF that was doing a lot of these higher fly maneuvers. And it showed here because, like I said, the crowd reaction to a lot of these things that were going on, they actually reacted for it. And how many times in all the companies do you see high fly maneuvers or somebody going through the ropes? You can literally start a drinking game. when you, If you watch AEW, you can start a drinking game with as many take a shot every time Excalibur says Tope Suicida. And I guarantee you, you'll be lit after the first match is over. Because Ron talks about this all the time. Everybody can't be Sami Sami Zayn. If everybody was, it wouldn't feel special. And in 1997, matches like this actually felt special. It's just a a matter of do you actually care about the competitors in the ring? Do you have an investment in their match? And this match, for me, I just didn't have an investment in. And we all know Taka Michinoku would be the first ever WWF light heavyweight champion. Next up, we have Vader and The Undertaker for the WWF Championship. The Undertaker is going to defeat Vader here. Uh, before the match, we get a Paul Bearer back, promo backstage with Vader and Doc Hendricks. And how great was it to see how proud Paul Bearer was to have something, some dirt on The Undertaker? And, um, mind you, this is also a part of The Undertaker and Kane's story, which is also one of the greatest stories that I actually ever told through a, through a month-to-month basis. And... At the top of the show, also discuss, I'm saying this again. At the top of the show, I discuss forgotten parts of stories, and I forgot Vader was even with Bearer at a certain point in time. And I'm not sure if we ever. I'm not sure if Paul Bearer ever gets much appreciation about like the way he transformed himself to an extent because he was the creepy guy with the, Undertaker, with the early version of Undertaker, and then when he breaks away from the Undertaker, he his hair is blonde, uh, his mannerisms start changing. He's not. The, scare, the guy who scares you as much as he would in the early 90s. But Paul Bearer here, he was amazing, Tell, especially telling the story of the Undertaker, saying, I have, to, uh, you killed your family, and things like that. He did a great job pro, uh, progressing this entire story. And say so he was able to transform himself through time as a creepy manager with the Undertaker, and then he leaves the Undertaker. He gets blonde hair. He's a completely different person. Never, he never really reverts back to the original Paul Bearer, but he definitely did evolve over time. We have to appreciate that. And he was very animated during this match. You know, fan himself, being so proud when he would do something right. And if there's a match that I think you should watch from this show, I, it's, it's definitely this one. I highly recommend it. So after you're done listening to this show, I suggest that you go back and listen to this show. I think it's a really a really good match to actually watch. These two are known as the two of the best big man workers ever and I thought they had a hell of a match. You would have thought Taker was in there with a smaller guy because Vader's athleticism made up for it and it makes this match actually work here. And Taker gets the victory after two chokes and in a tombstone pile driver and Paul Bearer walks away with disgust after the match. Since this is a since this is a two-hour in-your-house pay-per-view, we're about to head to the main event here. So it's Stone Cold, Ken Shamrock, the Royal Warriors, and Goldust against the Hart Foundation. We get a promo of Austin's team with Doc Hendricks backstage. Everybody does their shtick, but Austin just walks away and says nothing. Uh, the presentation of this for the Hearts was 
absolutely amazing. The Canadian national anthem was sung before the match. It was literally a family affair here. They had all individual entrances, like they were part of a starting lineup for a basketball team. And you can you can literally not hear Fink announce anyone's name, especially when Brett comes out. You could barely hear Howard Fink announce anybody. And when you see this American team on paper, you'll say to yourself, "What the fuck kind of team is this?" But it actually really worked. The crowd's into it the entire time, and for an era with no crowd. You really kind of got to appreciate this and kind of appreciate what a crowd plays into an actual match. Uh, I'm convinced the entire Hart Foundation, by the way, in this match, they could have sat in the middle of the ring and took a shit and the crowd would have still cheered because the crowd was on fire this entire time. And Austin leaves the match and returns to the latter portion. The crowd's all over Austin here, including the Hart family, literally. Austin is attacked by Owen Austin's actually attacking Owen on the post, and the Hart family jumps the barricade. Owen gets the roll of victory on Austin after an interference from Bruce Hart. And then after the match, we get the hero celebration in Canada for the Hart family. The entire Hart family enters the ring, and Austin comes back and tries to get get one on the Hart family. He's laying, he's fighting with Anvil, gets cuffed up, and that's how the show actually ends. But this team, when you like I said, when you see this team on paper, you would not think this actually worked. But it might not be the best match from an in-ring perspective. But every little thing that the Hart Foundation did in this match, the crowd ate it all up. And you have to appreciate this match. Uh, like I said, a, a, a one-hour and forty-eight-minute show. And everything on this show actually was very important and progressed so much. And I really did enjoy it. All the acclaim that the show actually gets is very well-deserved. Now, next week's episode, I believe, is all going to be all about NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 2015. If not, it will be about SummerSlam 1999. Uh, I'm looking forward to reviewing NXT TakeOver Brooklyn. That's the first time me and Pash actually hung out just me and him and we were also with my my good friend James and who knows if it's not for that show who knows if I'll still even be here recording this podcast with you right now so that's it for the show I'm Alo Aaron Lloyd and I will see you guys next week hop on the top rope by the land with elbow got him now put him down right now hit him with the palm handle Tuning up the band, y'all don't understand. Fist of Superman, it's a summer slam. Here we go again. Fans mocking man, man, I hate my ball. Shut the basement, man. It ain't safe to land off the cell. Fans love it, ain't hard to tell. Talking madness, awesome. Well, what I'm cooking, man, y'all off the smell.